Amen. Church, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Rod's up. He'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Hope you all had a, a blessed Thanksgiving. This morning, the title of my study is Gluttony and Our Need to Repent. So, um, no. <laughs> it's not. I'm just kidding. Okay. Actually, I have a little bit of a change in plans. I, I originally planned to share a couple of studies on, on standing strong in a fallen world, and we did. We looked at a couple of uh, excerpts out of the book of Daniel. Then I was going to get into the Gospel of Luke at Christmas time, but the Lord kind of spoke to my heart over a little bit of, of uh, the last week or so, and, and uh, uh, we're going to go, we're going to look at First Peter. And so we're looking at that because when I was at the pastor's conference, you know, they were talking about, um, you know, uh, when you're sharing God's word on Sunday, are your people at the end of the day, are they more angry at the world or are they more in love with Jesus? And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> I could be more angry at the world myself. And so, okay, let's, let's get into a book that, that really shows us that we have hope because the books of first and second Peter, they're all about hope. So turn with me in your Bibles in your Bibles in your Bibles to First Peter. We're going to look at verses one through five, actually six A, we'll call it. And the title of my message is Our Only Hope. Let's read it. Verse one Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. As I said, my message this morning is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together in your word. Thank you, Lord, for those that are watching online that couldn't be in this place physically today, Lord. We know that wherever your word goes forth, Lord, if we're attentive to it, Holy Spirit, you will speak to our hearts, and we thank you for this opportunity just to sit and rest and hear you speak to our hearts. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here or anyone watching online that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, we pray that you'd speak to their hearts today. Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to turn off this fan. Hold on a second. Sounds like there's mosquitoes flying around me. <laughs> I think for many of us, we're familiar with the Star Wars movies. We all remember the scene where Princess Leia sends a message to Obi-Wan Kenobi telling him to come quickly, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. The fact of the matter is, as we look around our country, it's not hard to see that we are in the midst of a cold civil war. The forces of darkness are, are coming against the forces of light. People are fearful about the drastic changes that are taking place in our country. We're traveling very quickly towards socialism, communism, inflation is off the chart. 
But we don't need Obi-Wan. <laughs> we, we need Jesus. So really the title of my message could be, Help us, O Jesus, you're our only hope. Because definitely there's one thing that this world needs now is hope. It was a 17th century bishop named Francis Sells who wrote these words that seem to really apply to us today. He wrote, quote, Do not look forward to the changes and the chances of this life in fear. Rather, look to them with full hope that as they arise, God, whose who's you are, will deliver you out of them. He is your keeper. He has kept you hitherto. Hold fast to his dear hand, and he will lead you safely through all things. And when you cannot stand, he will bear you in his arms. Do not look forward to what may happen tomorrow. Our Father will either shield you from suffering, or he will give you the strength to bear it. Uh, I like that. For that reason, the Apostle Peter reminds us as believers that we have a living hope. And again, I'm excited to go through the book of First and Second Peter because it's all about hope. Hope through trials, hope through persecution, hope through difficult family situations, hope in our marriages, hope because the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Yeah, Peter will also cover what awaits those who don't know Christ and the judgment that follows, but to those of us that do, we have hope. Now, as we consider our message, our only hope, I have three points if you're taking notes. Number one, the people. Number two, the prayer. Number three, the praise. We begin with the people, and we begin with verse one, Peter. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about Peter, there's many misconceptions about him. For most people, you know, Peter is really just the, the brunt of bad heaven jokes. You know, all the lame jokes about two guys died and they go to heaven. And there's Peter there, the pearly gates, telling them this or telling them that. I don't know about you, but even though I would like to meet Peter one day, I'm going to be pretty disappointed if when I get there, I, the first person I see is Peter. Uh, I'd rather see my Lord and Savior. Uh, but don't get me wrong, I appreciate Peter in Scripture because I think I can relate to him most of all. Some people go, oh, I'm, I can relate to Paul. That's because you're a brainiac, okay? <laughs> but for me, it's like, like Peter. I, I understand him a little bit. You know, he was always wanting to please the Lord and, and doing what is right, and it always stick his foot in his mouth. <laughs> and if it comes out of his mouth, he sticks his other foot in his mouth. You know, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration and you got Moses and Elijah and then Jesus is standing there in his glorified body and Peter says, Lord, it's good that we are here. Let's build three tabernacles. And it says, he said this because he didn't know what to say. And you go, oh, that's, that's, I, I can relate to that. You know, Peter, he's this big, burly, loving fisherman that Jesus taught to be a fisher of men's souls. Yeah, he was a man that, that failed the Lord miserably, and yet he was fully forgiven, fully restored, and, and to the point where he could pen this letter that brings so much encouragement and so much hope to our hearts today. I mean, if anybody could teach on the subject of hope, it would be Peter. There as he stepped out onto the water when Jesus bid him to come, and he actually got out of the boat where the disciples, they stayed in the boat. Peter actually took a couple steps walking on water. None of them did. Until he got his eyes off of the Lord and onto his circumstances and blurp, 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 down he goes. And Jesus reaches him, pulls him up, gets him back in the boat. He gave Peter hope. Saint Peter said, though all deny you, Lord, I will never deny you. Then he denied the Lord three times as he took his eyes off the Lord and onto the circumstances around him, warming himself by that enemy's fire. But then that same Peter, weeping bitterly over his failure, seeing his Lord crucified, and in his deepest despair, 
you would have thought he lost all hope given the message of hope. Go and tell Peter and the other apostles that Jesus was alive. Not go and tell the other apostles, forget about Peter, he's gone. No, go tell Peter and the apostles. I mean, that gave him hope once again and restored him and commissioned him. As Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And as we look at this epistle, that's exactly what Peter is doing. He's being obedient to the Lord to feed his sheep. Just to, just, just to see the amazing change that has taken place in Peter's life from this letter shows us that there's hope for all of us. Now, we also know that Peter was married, which is encouraging to us when he talks about marriage relationship in chapter 3 of the roles of the husband and wife because he's been there. He knows what it's like. So we can talk about it. He was married. He had a wife. He had a mother-in-law who lived with them, according to Mark chapter 1. And his wife is mentioned not only in Mark chapter 1, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So Peter was married, and he had a mother-in-law. Now, if you're making Peter out to be the first pope, it's an interesting fact that you're going to have to deal with the first pope was married with a mother-in-law. And if anything, it's your mother-in-law that will certainly let you know that you are not infallible. Okay. Notice here how Peter describes himself, though, verse 1. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, before he was an apostle, he was a disciple. That term disciple appears 245 times in the Gospels, referring to those early 12 followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. You know what a disciple is? A disciple technically means a student, a pupil, a learner, somebody who has a teacher or a mentor. But Jesus' disciples became his apostles. I read a story of a children's Sunday school class where they were asked what an epistle is, to which one little boy responded, an epistle is the wife of an, of an apostle. That's not true. Actually, the term apostle is used in a couple of different ways. Most frequently in a very strict sense, a very narrow sense, referring to the original twelve who followed Jesus. They were the first generation handpicked followers personally commissioned by Jesus to go out. They actually been with Jesus Physically, it was those 12 that Jesus gave some miraculous power. Paul the Apostle would say in 2 Corinthians 12, I'm an apostle because I work the works and signs of an apostle. It was the apostles or those associated with the apostles who wrote the New Testament. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, in a very strict sense, there are no more apostles today. Even though there's some men in some of these churches, they're claiming to be apostles. They are not. It's unbiblical. But in a broad sense, if you look at the, the, the term apostle, it simply means sent out once. So you begin as a disciple, a learner, then you get sent out. There should be that natural progression. You get converted, you get discipled, and you go and you share your faith. You get sent out. It's been said, churches die when converts don't become disciples and when disciples don't become apostles. That's when churches die. That's when people die spiritually. See, there, there must be three levels in our walk with the Lord. Number one, are you truly converted? Has there been genuine repentance and surrender of your life to Jesus Christ? Number two, after your conversion, have you become a disciple, one who is a learner? denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, following Jesus Christ. And number three, are you discovering your sphere of influence into which you are sent out to represent Him? To be that witness to the, to, 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 for Christ wherever you go. See, all three um, express 
different stages of growth. That's who Peter was. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. There are those that <laughs> claim that Peter didn't really write this letter because he was just really an ignorant fisherman. But listen, no man after spending three years in the school of Jesus could be called ignorant. In fact, Peter, you know, uh, the epistle confirms that. Peter deals with the doctrine of election, of foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, the blood of Christ, the Trinity, the grace of God, salvation, revelation, glory, faith, and hope, all within the first five verses here. How does he do that? Through the Spirit of God that worked that change in Peter's life. Same way that God works in our lives. We get into God's Word and He's teaching us through the Holy Spirit uh, how to walk with our God and to learn these truths. We also know that Peter started out as Simon, which meant sifting sand until Jesus got a hold of Simon and, and soon he became Peter, which is the rock. Now, I don't know if he had one eyebrow that went up and he had a smoldering look on his face, you know, like the rock, but his name was changed. Remember when... when uh, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. And Peter replied in verse 16 through 18. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say that you say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now in hearing that sentence, some have actually believed that Jesus was building his church upon Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. They say, well, his name means rock, and so he's building his church on Peter. Can I just say, if he built his church on Peter, we'd all be in big trouble. The Lord was not building his church upon Peter, the small rock, the pebble, but upon the rock, the rock of Gibraltar, the rock of what what Peter just said about Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I'm going to build my church upon that. Peter would be appalled today at what has been described about him in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the last thing that he would want. In fact, tradition has it that Peter was sentenced to be crucified, that that when he was, that he asked his executioners if he could be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified as his Lord and Savior. So, with that, we see Pete, he's writing sometime around 64, 65 AD. The day of Pentecost is behind him. He, and he knows what it takes to take a stand for Christ. He's been arrested. He's been put in jail. He's been threatened. And he realizes that crucifixion, the, the cross is ahead of him. I mean, Peter was a man who knew what he was talking about because he wrote from personal experience. One more point. It's been said that John is the apostle of love. Paul is the apostle of faith. And Peter is the apostle of hope. Three times alone in chapter 1, he talks about the hope we have in Christ. So that brings us to our second group of people, the pilgrims. See, Peter goes on, look in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you have a GPS, you go on Google Maps and you try to look for those places. Good luck. They don't exist anymore. Ancient designations of Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, what we call Asia Minor, all of them are in present-day Turkey. But in all those places... These believers were scattered, dispersed, and now churches were forming in those areas. People were coming to faith. They were disciples. They're being sent out. Peter calls them here pilgrims, much like the pilgrims that came to America and the holiday we just celebrated in remembrance of, of God's blessing on, on our country. 
But this word pilgrim here is best translated by a word we don't use very often. It's a word sojourners. It means a resident foreigner. People living in one place as a stranger. Now, I don't know about you, but the more and more in these days in which we're living, I'm feeling like a pilgrim. As this world is changing so rapidly, we recognize this world is not our home. Because once you become a Christian, you become a citizen of heaven. And everywhere you reside on earth is foreign to the true desire of our hearts, which eventually is to be home in heaven with Jesus. We looked at this recently in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. See, we as Christians have standards. And we have values that are different from the rest of the world. And we're seeing that more and more. We become strangers in this land. We're strange because we speak out against sin. We don't approve of it. We're strange because we stand up for righteousness. We call sin, sin. And the world's response, oh, you narrow-minded Christians, you fundamentalists, what's wrong with you? Get with the times. You're so weird. You're so different. Listen, that should not surprise us. I would be more concerned if your life, in your life non-believers don't see you as being a little bit strange or different. So Peter says that this letter is written to the pilgrims of dispersion. That word dispersion means scattered. It's, it's again describes how we as believers are dispersed or scattered all over the world as resident foreigners looking for, waiting for us to enter our promised land, to enter heaven. Reminds me of a story about a mom on board a ship in the middle of the Atlantic and an angry storm arose, almost sunk the boat, but the woman stayed calm. She showed great strength. When the ordeal was over, the captain asked her the secret of her composure. She said, well, I've got two daughters. One lives in New York and the other lives in heaven. I knew I'd see one of my girls in a few hours and it really didn't matter which one. (laughs) We're all just pilgrims. We're on a journey. We're merely passing through. Then Peter says in verse 2 that this letter is written to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and strengthening of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a mouthful. (laughs) Peter calls the people elect and then describes how they were elected and for what purpose. The doctrine of election is a doctrine that Christians have argued about and divided over for centuries and there's no end in sight to that disagreement. I'll tell you what I believe in a moment, but first I need to point out something here about our text. According to R. Grundem's commentary on 1 Peter, the word translated elect or chosen at the beginning of what is verse 2 here in our English Bible is actually found in verse 1 in the Greek text. It's there an adjective modifying the word sojourners. So according to the Greek language, Peter is simply saying this letter is written to the elect sojourners. In other words, the chosen pilgrims. And then Peter says these chosen sojourners, these elect pilgrims in verse 2, are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, this was not so much about salvation as much as it's about God's direction and God's sovereignty. God has chosen these believers in that specific time to be a part of what was going on at that time in that specific place at that time. He chose them to live at a time in history where persecution against Christians would be strong and getting stronger. Which is another reason why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote this letter to give them hope, because times were going to get a lot worse. 
In the same way, again, we can say we are the, the sojourners, elect sojourners according to the foreknowledge of God to live for Christ during this time in which we live in the Ozarks where, where things could get a lot worse for us. And God knows what lies ahead for us and he's preparing us to be used by him in our future because times make it worse. Now, because this word elect is here and foreknowledge, let's talk about that for a moment. It's unfortunate there's been certain teachings about election and God foreknowledge that have been taught in ways that the Bible has never intended it to be. For example, Christians are being told God's election of individuals is according to his foreknowledge, and that must mean that some people are predestined to be saved and other people are predestined to go to hell, damned to go to hell. Not true. That's never what the Bible teaches. God never sends anyone to hell. People send themselves there by rejecting God's free offer of salvation. So what do I believe about divine election? I believe God chose you for salvation before the foundation of the earth, and that every man, woman, child has a free will to receive or reject this offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. You are chosen but free. Well, I don't get it. It doesn't matter. The Bible teaches both. Any attempt to resolve this any further always emphasizes one truth over the other and will lead you away from truth into error. So how do you know if you're chosen or not? Give your life to Jesus Christ. You're chosen. Pretty simple. Now Peter goes on with another statement that's worthy of looking at a little bit closer. Verse 2, he says there, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Then he says, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The phrase sanctification of the Spirit is that daily, ongoing work uh, through the Holy Spirit in your life to give you that ever-increasing victory over sin. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said that his right foot in driving his car is the last part of his body to be sanctified. Just pressing on that gas, going way too fast. I can relate to that. It was John Newton, former slave trader and author of the song Amazing Grace, who said, I am not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I thank God I'm not what I once was. And I can say with great, the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, here's Peter uh, saying, because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have the power to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. We have the power to resist temptation, to live for Christ. It doesn't mean we become sinless, but it should definitely mean we sin less. And then when we do sin, we have the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ where we read to cleanse us of all of our sin. There Peter pulls from the Old Testament the practice of people being uh, sprinkled for purification when they came into contact with something that defiled them. Again, today we're not uh, you know, literally sprinkled, but we understand that Jesus' death on the cross cleanses us of all of our sins. We just confess it to him. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we have number one, the people. Number two, the prayer. What is Peter's prayer? Look at verse, the end of verse two. Peter writes, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Always like that. Why grace first? Because without the grace of God, you cannot experience the peace of God in your life. Without receiving that grace and forgiveness of your sins, there will be no lasting peace or true peace in your life. Think of all the concepts in the Bible. One of the most important ones for you and I to understand and apply to our life is the grace of God. Because if you don't understand God's grace, you don't understand the gospel. Grace is the core of the gospel message. We are saved by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Grace means undeserved favor. We don't deserve salvation. But... 
By God's grace through faith we have it. We can grow in grace. Second Peter will see in chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Uh, thirdly, God sustains us through grace as we go through trials. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, he told Paul. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Paul said. And finally, we see next week that we can fix our hope on the grace that comes from Jesus' return. Verse 13 of chapter 1, we're, we're told, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. In fact, the very last verse of the Bible reads in Revelation 22, 21, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Grace. And that's Peter's prayer for us, that, that, that the Lord's grace be with us. We'd find our, our hope and, and our peace through the grace of God. This brings us to our third and final point. Number one, the people, Peter and the pilgrims. Sounds like a Christian band. Number two, the prayer, grace and peace. And number three, the praise. Verses 3 through 5, that we see the praise of God for all he has done. He begins by praising God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed here is, is a different word than what you might find in, in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, it means, oh, how happy. But here the word is a Greek word from which we derive our word eulogy, or it means to praise. So verse 3 would read, Praise be to the God of our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy has begotten to us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that Peter calls it a living hope. The word living could also be translated alive, powerful, active. Praise be to God for this alive, active, powerful hope that we have right now. I mean, it's one, in fact, there's one thing that Christians have in abundance and that is hope. We have hope. Unbelievers don't. They're without hope. Ephesians 2.12, speaking of before we came to Christ, Paul writes that at that time you were without Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. So praise God for his hope, this hope that we have. And then he goes on. We have three other reasons to praise God for. In verse 3, we praise God for his abundant mercy. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, salvation. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is hell. God has abundantly not given what we deserve. So often we deserve God's judgment, but in His mercy and love, He draws us back to Himself. That mercy can also be translated loving kindness. See, people should be able to see the hope that we have because of God's loving kindness being poured out in our lives, His mercy. Then number two, praise God that we've been born again. Peter says it's according to his abundant mercy. He has begotten us again to a living hope. Some uh, modern translations render verse three, according to his abundant mercy, we've been born again. I think the the, the phrase born again, it's kind of become cliche now, now, uh, you know, in the times in which we're living. Oh, you're one of those born again Christians. And you hear that and think, are there any other kind of Christians other than born-again Christians? You know, I'm not offended to be called a born-again Christian. In fact, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, a better translation would be to, be to be born from above, to be born a second time, to have a, a spiritual birth, a transformation that occurs on the inside and works its way out. Sir Peter's praising God here uh, for being born again. 
In other words, the second reason people should see that we have hope is because we've been born again. That's what the word begotten means. We have a new start, and that should be evident. And then number three, and best of all, we praise God because Jesus rose from the dead. Again, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to, again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, that gives every one of us hope. You know, Jesus said great things when he walked on this earth to inspire hope in, his, in, in, in our lives. He said that the Father had sent him to save the lost, so we know that. He said that he was a, the, the water of life, and if you would just drink the water that he gives, you'd never thirst again. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No man would come to the Father except through him. He said he was the resurrection and the life that whoever believes in him would live and, and, and would never die. All those statements inspire hope. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it confirmed all of those claims. He can redeem lost man. Man can come to the Father. Man can be satisfied and never thirst again. Man can have eternal life. We have hope. We have hope in our resurrection body. <laughs> These bodies that are breaking down day by day, you know, you know we're going to get that new glorified body, one with the, the, that's built for heaven, that's strong and healthy. We have hope that we'll see our loved ones again if they were believers. Because why? Jesus rose from the dead. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those that have died, lest you sorrow others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So it's an active, living, powerful hope that we have. This is the message that Peter wants us to get. He wants us to realize that our point of reference for this living hope is the empty tomb of Jesus. That's what should motivate us. Because Jesus said he would rise again, and he did. We have hope because Jesus says, he will, he will come back again, and He will. We have hope because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also, and He has. That's why we have a living hope. Let me ask you this morning, do you really believe that Jesus could come back today? I tell you, uh, a group of some 2,000 pastors and leaders attending this last pastor's conference that I went to in California thought that that would be our last pastor's conference together. That Jesus' return is that close. And I tell you, that gives me hope. That gets me excited. It's not just me that think it's close. All these other pastors and leaders think it is too. So, see, hope is what, what causes us to press on even when things get tough, to fight the good fight, to finish our race. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a living hope, an eager, confident expectation of the life to come. We can keep going that he has begun. He that has begun a good work in us will complete it. He won't leave us down here in this rat race to drown well, then as if to really get our hopes up, Peter in his praise to God describes even with more clarity this hope we have. Look now at verse 4. He says, We're promised an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Love that. We have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven. It's eternal. Now we know what an inheritance is in this world. It's property or, or money or a title that someone leaves you when they die, it now becomes yours. Often, it, you know, an inheritance is left to a child from a parent. Unless it's like that bumper sticker that we've all seen on the back of that large motorhome driving down the road that says we're spending our children's inheritance. But listen, as children of God, 
Jesus came to this earth and died bequeathing heaven to you. It's your inheritance. It's my inheritance. He's not talking about rewards here that you might be given by Jesus when he looks back on your life of service, but, but the, the verb tense means your inheritance is already there. It's reserved by God for you. Cannot be affected by death or by sin or by the passage of time. It's being reserved. The word reserved in verse 4 means it's kept especially for a particular person. It's like, like a will, like, like a living trust. This is Peter's way of saying that God, who's begun a good work in you, will complete it. You can bank on it. Our inheritance, he says, is incorruptible. Undefiled does not fade away. Incorruptible means that it cannot be destroyed. Undefiled means that it can't be polluted or stained or cheapened in any way. And does not fade away means that when the Lord takes us home, we will be lifted into a world where there'll be no decay, no more sin. God's peace and joy are untouched by the changes of life. That's reserved for you in heaven. Listen, it's only reserved in heaven for you if your name is on the guest list. If your name has been written in the book of life. If you've repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you're in. Finally, Peter is saying, listen, no matter how bad things may get, you're going to make it. Look at verse 5. With this living hope, we are, verse 5, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think this is one of the strongest statements for the eternal security of the believer. The word kept there is a military term, meaning guarded, kept safe, and carefully watched. In other words, God's guarding you. God is keeping you safe. God is carefully watching over you. You're going to get to heaven where God will complete what he has begun in you. See, it's not you holding on to him. It's him holding on to you. I, I, I like it of thinking of it this way. When I'm walking down the street or about to cross the street and I got maybe one of my granddaughters, I'm holding her hand and, and I say, hold on to Papa's hands as we cross the street. And they do. And let me say, if one of them happens to, to slip and lose their balance, they might open their hand, but in reality, it really wouldn't matter because I got a hold of them. They may think they're holding on to my hand, but I'm holding on to them. See, it really wouldn't matter what danger came their way. I've got a hold of them. They are kept in my power. Listen, we are, are increasingly living in a world that's unsafe. And people are sensing that. There's a lot of anxiety. Yet Peter says we are kept by the power of God. Same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Same power that gave us our new life in Christ is the same power that protects us as we walk in faith in Christ. Protected by the power of God. Why do we need protection? You know it. I know it. We're involved in a spiritual battle. Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are there out to get us, seeking to consume us, to discourage us, to depress us, to fill our hearts with anxiety, fear, and hopelessness. But God is greater than our hearts and gives us everything we need to get through this life in victory. Peter says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. I want to close with this. Warren Wiersbe once wrote concerning this hope that we have. He says this, This confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace on the battlefield where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It's a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life, but unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward. It does not hold us back. I love that. So 
How does God accomplish this in our lives? Through faith. We are kept by the power of God through faith. What this means is as you believe God, regardless of your circumstances or your situation on the earth, as you believe God through faith, you can have a living hope in your future. A hope you can count on. A hope you can cling to every single day. And the only uh, result of that is, the, again, the beginning of verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Why? Because if you look back with understanding upon what Peter said, you cannot help but rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for you. See, it's not difficult to follow Peter's train of thought. Everything begins with salvation. Everything begins with our personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. If we know Christ is our Savior, then we have hope. If we have hope, then we can walk in holiness and harmony. And if we have hope, then we can greatly rejoice. Now, if you don't have hope, then it's because of one of two things. Either you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus and onto all the circumstances and stuff in the world, or, plain and simple, you've not been born again. Either way, the solution is pretty much the same. Get your eyes back on Jesus if you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus if you've not given your life to Him. Either way, He is our only hope. Finally, I want to leave you with these six verses. You can write them down. You can put them down in, in, in your Bible, on a piece of paper. Something that when you start to get discouraged and be hopeless, first of all, you can look at these. Psalm 39, 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Psalm 31, 24. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Proverbs 23, 18. For surely there is a hereafter and your hope will not be cut off. I like that one. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Lamentations 3.26, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. I do pray, Father, if there's anyone watching online, anyone in this room who has not surrendered their heart and life to you, Lord, as we just read, they are without hope at this point in their lives. But Lord, you offer them hope. You offer them forgiveness of their sin. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone watching, anyone here in this room, as the offer goes out to, to come to you for salvation, to come to you for the forgiveness of sin, that, that there'd be none here that would reject that offer. Lord, I pray that anyone watching online, that they would give their life to you today. Anyone in this room, they would give their life to you today. To be your follower, to have our sin forgiven, to be born again today. Because then we have hope. Lord, it's precious hope. Lord, uh, we, we look forward to your return. We look forward to the work that you're doing in our hearts, Lord. But we just trust in you and we thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.